The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist executive search and TV production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Welcome to The Imposter Club, a podcast for people working in TV to admit that we are all just winging it. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, director turned talent company founder and I glean secrets from influential figures in the creative industries every day. Spoiler alert, more successful people than you'd ever realise still feel like a fraud. But you don't get to hear their stories. That changes right here. In this podcast, it's my mission to discover how you can carve out an award-winning career in the company of self-doubt by asking respected senior people to share their stories of career fears and failures and what they learned from them. Come on in to the Imposter Club. I was listening to a bit of Hamilton this morning for a motivation. I've decided that Hamilton the musical is like my church. It makes me focus on what I need to be doing. Yeah. I don't know, are you a Hamilton fan? Um, I've not seen Hamilton actually. I've heard it's really good though. So what, you were lacking a bit of motivation this morning? I did a a 7am circuits class. Good work. So I was like, right, I'm going to stick the musical on loud and I'm going to shout. Right, let's do this. This is the last episode in our first series. I can't believe it. Uh, I've saved the best name for last, in my opinion, Jan Genesis. Don't you just want to know this guy already? Jan is a multi-camera director for huge events and live shows in the world of music, entertainment and formats. So he calls and chooses the shots in the studio or on location, when there are a million cameras and people to coordinate. You're going to love his confidence, but you know me by now. It's all about getting under the visible success to find out what happened along the way. Jan, thank you for joining the Imposter Club. Well, thank you for having me. I feel like I should be serving some drinks or at least canapes or something at this stage in the series. A bit early for alcohol, man. I've got my cup of tea, though. Once we're on to live events, hashtag ambitious, we'll sort out the drinks menu, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Can I just be a bit fangirl for a minute? Okay. So you, you're a multi-camera director on huge global formats and live events and big brand launches. But seriously, the names on your CV and the titles, it's like, I think anyone would love even if they aren't from entertainment or um reality or sports even sort of straight docky people i think would look at your cv and go oh my god that must have been so fun to make and wow i would just have loved to have directed lewis hamilton or stormzy or big zoo you've done 24 hours in a and e and police custody um you've done i'm a celebrity you've done the commonwealth in the Paralympic Games. That is really cool. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, do you know what? Sometimes I forget myself the range of talent that, that I've been able to, to work with and, and the different experiences I've had. Like, a, I think as a, as a multi-camera director, you're only kind of as good as your last project or your last show a lot of the time. I'd love to find out from you your sort of earliest context. Tell me a bit about you growing up and how you got into telly in the first place. Sure. Well, um, I guess the first thing I'd say is I, I totally stumbled into television. There was never a clear plan. There was never a path. There was never a directed ambition. So I grew up in, in Stevenage in, in, in Hertfordshire, a brother and sister, a single parent kind of upbringing. And 
I guess I was someone not exceptional at anything, but I was pretty good at most things. I enjoyed sport. I enjoyed, I guess, entertainment. I enjoyed kind of being around people. Um, I went through the motions of school, struggled to get that balance right, got my way to university, um, studied media technology and digital broadcast. And that sounds like you kind of knew what you wanted to do at that point. Did you always assume you had to go to uni? Is that something that your mum wanted and did herself? I think growing up, she, she again, there was a lot of period in, in our younger days where like she was a full-time mum. So she kind of looked after the three of us. Um, she worked super hard, really driven, um, wanted to ensure that we didn't miss out on things. And when we got to secondary school, she started working in a more administrative role. But um, we were we were like really aware that we didn't have a parent who was going to give us a, an internship at, in a law firm or open the door for us to have an opportunity like we were if we were going to make anything of ourselves we had to figure out a way to do that ourselves and so my mum really pushed us like to to do well academically which was part of the reason why I went and did computer network technology it sounded respectable (laughs) even (laughs) even though I wasn't particularly mum it's got computers in the title so um, yeah, so yeah, I went down that road. So it, it was a, uh, it was like yeah, like if you're if you're going to make anything yourself, you need to go to university. It was that kind of, um, I wouldn't say we we're forced, but it was very much there wasn't really much conversation about something else unless there was a clear line. Yeah, um, it was like we need to get the education, we need to get the highest possible education we can, and then it was then you need to kind of get a job after that. So uh, yeah, and how did you get on with your? siblings I know that you know you said that um you're really into football tell me a bit about about that and how they sort of shaped your personality I guess my brother and I um were similar age he's only two years below the the fundamental difference between my brother and I is that I feel my brother is naturally talented um in in a lot of areas but particularly when it came to sport didn't really have to particularly work hard and um and I guess we're... It's always annoying, isn't it, when you've got a sibling like that? <laughs> it is, man, it is. Um, I always wanted him to do well, so anytime, anything I'd learn, I'd want to teach him, I'd want to show him how it's done, um, and then he'd do it, and he'd pick it up, and he'd be better. <laughs> I guess I always took on that role of the big brother, but at the same time, when we'd play together, I, I didn't want to be outshone by, by my little brothers, but the only way for me to stay at that level, I felt, was to almost train for training. <laughs> I'd be running around Stevenage on the cycle paths. I'd be doing 5K, 10K runs um, when I was 14, 15, 16 years old, just kind of like keeping myself fit because that was the one thing I could control. Um, yes, I could try hard in training, but it was like, what else can I do to um, maximise what I can offer the team and to and to keep myself at that level and be able to contribute? And that was the kind of the, like the determining factor. And I think when my brother and I sit down and we have conversations about growing up, he'll always he'll he'll always refer to my mindset and my work rate. Um, whereas I'll a lot of the time I'll, I'll refer to his natural ability and his his skill set. From having that from a young age, that's kind of stuck with me. So it's almost like you knew you had a level of ability, but you very early on identified that you had to find a different edge, which was your relentlessness, I suppose. Is that a good word to use for it? <laughs> I, I think so. Um, and persistence? Yeah, I, no, I think, I think relentlessness, persistence. Um, yeah, the work rate. I, I think it was just the only thing I knew how to do was work. That was the only thing I'd do, work harder. If training starts at seven, I'll be there earlier, I'll, and I'll and I'll be putting a bit, bit bit longer, and I'll stay there after. And then the next morning, when there's no training, I'll do my own sessions. But um, but yeah, in, in our kind of early years, it was definitely 
that case of recognizing that yeah you're not you're not the best at this um but you enjoy it and if you're going to stay at this level you're going to have to put something against you in where do you think that does come from um did your mum instill that in you because she's obviously a grafter from what you've said yeah i, I definitely think my mum had a strong part to play she worked extremely hard um to ensure that we were able to not miss out on things like even kind of down to helping us with homework and and like i remember i'd be getting up at six o'clock in the morning on the deadline of off off days to make sure i check stuff through and she'd be up as well if i needed so that ability to kind of like just maximize time that's the first place i saw it it's also a positive mental attitude i think isn't it um you could have easily gone this is just really hard i'm not great at it i'll just sort of you know bimble along i'll just manage it but there was something inside you that wanted to do really well to be ambitious yeah i think so but recognize where where you can be if you want to do something at the top level you need to recognize something where you've got that that talent to do that for and then put all of this effort into that put this effort into that thing that you're 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 really good at i was able to take some of that work great into university there was an internship opportunity where um our course tutor set up a visit to bloomberg that was your first proper tv contract was an internship at bloomberg that's right yeah it was a 10-week internship um, as a broadcast technical operator as soon as I walked into that building, you're right in the middle of the city. Everybody's in suits. People are talking Spanish, Italian, Portuguese. You're, you've got eight floors. It's kind of like you've got free teas, coffee, snacks all over the building. Like the place has got just glass walls, so it looks huge. Everything's kind of like amplified and, and it really looks like, right, you're now in the big bad world. <laughs> it's an exciting industry, isn't it? And especially the sort of roles you've got yourself into in studios rather than out in the field in less than glamorous hotels and uh, filming in swamps and stuff that some people do. I I just think, yeah, your shiny world is super cool. I just was like, I've got to make sure that whatever happens, I get a full-time position here. Like this 10-week internship has to be a full-time position. That was my mentality from day one. So I said, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure I get it. And the only thing I know how to do is work hard. (laughs) I got fortunate, someone called in sick. I was able to cover them and I was offered a full-time position to extend straight after the 10-week internship. Wow. So you're at Bloomberg. You spent a couple of years on and off doing sort of different jobs and um, le- you know, climbing the ranks to an extent and working really hard, as we've established that you, you do. You got a directing job incredibly early on in your career. Tell me a bit about how that happened. Sure. So I... I... I became a, a technical operator. A year and a half later, they advertised for an internal position for an in-house director. And I looked at it and initially I didn't even consider going for it, but I did think I'd kind of shown competency. I'd done all of the roles. I had a good understanding of how it worked. I'd finished unit 21. I would have been about 23 here. Then I, I thought, well, let me, go and, let me go into the gallery and let me just see how these directors work. Um, so I remember watching, mm-hmm. sitting in the gallery, watching the directors, watching what they were doing. For me, even when I got into Bloomberg, just going back to your whole your, the whole imposter syndrome, when I walk into there the first time from university, I've never seen any equipment. I've never even picked up a proper camera other than a little camcorder. I've never seen a vision mixer. I don't know what that person is. I've never seen a sound desk. Master control, don't have a clue what it is. Video intake feeds, don't have a clue what it is. So I walk in there and it looks like I'm in a space station. 
I have no idea what it is. But within it, so said for me, and everyone around is just operating it really casual, like like it's nothing. Yeah. So I feel really out of my depth, but I, I attack it. And within a year and a half, I've done all of the roles and I've got a good understanding of what everyone does. Again, without being spectacular at anything, but having a reason to be, having a good understanding and showing competence to cover in all of those areas. Um, this role comes up, I see what the director's doing and I realise, well, hold on a second, this director, um, they're not physically having to do anything. They're not physically having to cut cameras or raise sound faders or like, they're just, they're communicating to what everybody, and so they need to have an understanding, but they just need, need to communicate to everybody what they need to do and have the plan. And I thought, oh, I think, I feel like that probably suits me. Like, I can leave the people who love those, doing those areas to do that, but I just need to kind of like help orchestrate that. So I thought, listen, let me apply. And if I don't get it, Again, maybe I'll get the vision mixer role. Worst case scenario, just carry on what I'm doing. Nothing to lose. Good attitude to have, actually. Um, because like you say, you, you didn't think you could necessarily pull it off. You did some research to investigate whether you really could or not. And then thought, what's the worst that could happen? So that's a positive attitude to have, I think. Yeah. And again, it, it just was a situation I just thought, I can't really lose here. Um, so I, I applied and then I got down to the final two. And for me, I really rated the way they kind of actually did this process because it really gave everybody a fair chance. It wasn't just about who's been here the longest. I had to write a cover note and, and as to why I felt I could do it and my angle would have been different to someone who's maybe been there for 20 years, who's done different roles. But then then when it came to the final two, it was okay, right, on a Saturday, we need you both to come in. You're both going to direct a, it was a 20 minute or a half an hour show. We're going to have presenters in. We're going to have a full crew in. We're going to have a full team. Um, and we'll, we'll literally be auditing you from prep to um, briefing to directing and to post-show. So literally, we had to do the job. Um, we had to be assessed on it. And they were going to choose the person they felt was the best candidate for the job based on actually doing it. In the room. In the room. That's really smart. In a smart. real gallery, in a real environment, an actual presenter. You could get feedback from the presenter. You can get feedback from the yeah. reporters. So for, for me, it was a really, really good way of doing it um, in-house and mildly terrifying how did you deal with that are you all right under pressure i don't i don't actually remember that much like i i know my approach would have been i just got to focus on what i could control and what i can do literally someone's sitting over your shoulder with a notepad while you're doing it but when you're doing those shows you've got a producer next to you anyway you've got a presenter watching you sometimes you'll have one of the um execs from the channel coming down and looking at what you're doing anyway um, so it wasn't totally alien to me having people watching in the gallery. It was normal. You're kind of on show in your job anyway. Right. You're, you're in show mode. So, yeah, and I managed to get the position and, um, and that was how I started. So that was all good. But I suppose that you had been in the building, in the industry, for a year and a half. And then you were given the director job at age 23 against other people who'd been doing stuff a lot longer. How was that received and how did you handle yourself being such a young director with lots of other experienced crew I imagine yeah that was I'd say that was probably the point in my career um, where I probably felt the first phase of really serious challenges this is the imposter club coming up it was a tough time I had to sign on at the job center and really reconsider my whole career path I've got a favor to ask pretty please hit follow or subscribe to the imposter club podcast for two reasons one so you don't miss an episode but two because i'm told it'll help other people find us more easily after all the more people like us that are safe inside the imposter club 
the fewer there are outside on their own. Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote, you can just log in on your phone, tablet, or desktop to collect, store, and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee-stained note saying, blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month. And with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E dot TV, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. Welcome back to The Imposter Club, where multi-camera director Jan Genesis is talking about getting his first directing break, age 23, but is suddenly not feeling the love on the studio floor. There were very few people who just came up and said, oh, fantastic, it's great you've got the job, really support you, congratulations again. I was new there, so I didn't have the same relationships. Like Some of those people have been there for 10, 20 years. Um, they'd go out for drinks together. They'd have a, a, a relationship beyond work. But, um, yeah, I kind of like, I found myself in situations where I was doing the shows and it just felt like people weren't cooperating and, and trying to help you win, if you like, really trying to help the show go well. And I've seen it now when new people are starting. A lot of the time you'll get... The rest of the team, more experienced, rally around them a little bit and say, oh, yeah, we usually do this or just be aware of this or this mm -hmm. is happening here or I can do this for you. So experienced people coming forward to help and support rather than sitting back and waiting for that person to fail and saying, see, this is why you're not really ready for this job. This is why you shouldn't really do it. And I think for me, it was like I had things like sound, the sound operator not raising a mic unless I specifically said raise the mic now. And even sometimes it would then be a little bit slow and a bit late that kind of stuff gets picked up by everybody. Then it's like, who's directing the show? What's going on with this director? And then it's like, no right. one said anything. Or you get a vision mixer, maybe cutting the wrong camera or cutting the wrong the wrong player for B-roll. And sometimes it's, it's human error, which we all have. Um, but a lot of time it was like, unless I specifically said exactly what you needed to do and when, it didn't feel like there was just common sense. It felt like people were almost working against without trying to absolutely derail their own career, but saying, well, listen, you're the director. We'll do exactly what you say and only what you say. It was that kind of energy. So, um, that's Yeah, okay. So they were kind of, they were working against you or just sort of waiting to, to trip you up. Yeah, or waiting for me to trip myself up. Naturally, I didn't do everything perfectly um, to start with. I, I, hadn't, I didn't really have lots of, of experience. And, and, it's, and it's not to say everyone was like that as well, but you just noticed that, Every, mm. there, were, there were some people. Did you think you were going mad? 
or kind of making it up? Or was it just really obvious that's what was happening? For me, it was it was obvious. Um, it did make you think, oh, man, maybe I need more training. Maybe I need to be doing something better because ultimately this isn't happening on everybody's show. But ultimately, mm. um, I felt like as the young, I guess the risk person, there's less, there's less of um, maybe less forgiveness if you're not doing it right straight away. It felt like there was a lot of pressure for me to kind of come in and do well. And there's a danger there, isn't there, that then people in the future... Uh, go oh well let's not do that again because you know we brought on that new person who I didn't have much experience was really young and it didn't really work out did it and actually that wasn't well I wasn't there but that wasn't your fault it seems um, because people were not supporting you in that how did you feel in that situation and then what did you do about it yeah well so, so it's one of those ones you go you, you finish your show you beat yourself up like for me it's one of those ones where whether it's my fault or not it's my fault like I, I just felt like I have to find, I've got to take responsibility here. Like I'm directing the show. It's down to me. I've got to figure out a way for this not to happen. The beauty of life is that when that show's finished, you've got another show in an hour's time. Like I was directing maybe three hours a day. So you have to take that experience that happened at the five o'clock. You use that in the eight o'clock. And then sometimes you have another show at 10. So for me, my, my air miles were shooting up though. I, I had to, I had to learn really quick. And ultimately... I had to take responsibility. I had to think, well, hold on. If these guys are only going to do things when I tell them to, I'm going to have to tell them to every time. <laughs> and I'm going to brief exactly how I'm going to work to every single person. And I'm going to do that with everyone in the room so everybody can hear that we've got a briefing of how we're going to work in the first instance. Then I'm going to stand them by for absolutely everything. And I'm going to wait. I'm going to make sure they confirm when that they're standing by so that they're ready. And then I'm going to tell them to... All right, so walk me through that. How did that sound? Okay, so it'd be something like, okay, guys, so listen, what, we, what we're going to do, um, this is happening in the show. We're going to have this guest, this guest. Give them the overview of the show. Then it's, okay, we're, we're in the show. Okay, standby presenter. We'll start with Susanna. Standby sound on A. Or standby sound with Susanna. Confirmed? Sound, you with me? Standing by with Susanna's mic? Yep, okay, here we go. Three, two, raising mic. Cue Susanna. So for me, it was, it, it yeah. was, it was over-directed a little bit. Um, it was and it was just getting that getting that back and forth. Okay, standby VT on A. Standing by, great. If I've heard, if as soon as I hear standing yeah. by, okay, and run VT on A. Well, that's clever because you're confirming everyone knows everything, but you're also chucking the or you're passing the baton to them to say now it's your fault if it goes wrong. Not that that's a very team player. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a, a team player. But if they were trying to get at you to trip you up, you've now got to say, nah, responsibility back to you. And that's, that's the way I look at it. It's more about the responsibility because um, I physically can't raise the faders myself. I can't do that. Okay, so I have to entrust you to do that because that's why you're here. You're, that's your professional area. So it started with that. So then it was more a case of, right, now we need to maybe just build some relationships with some of these guys and just try and kind of um, get into a flow, maybe get some feedback from them about how they like to work. What do you need? And sometimes it's not just the director coming up with all the answers. And, and also, don't you find that by um, involving other people, it tells them that you respect them and it tells them that you value what they think and you're also then establishing that relationship between you that says, look, this is a, this is a two-way street. And that was ultimately what happened. It came down to kind of like having, like, even outside of the studio, having more informal conversations with, with the team, letting them know what I needed. And for me, it, it only took a few, like, I'd say less than a month. And we were kind of into a bit of a flow. And then um, within two or three months, we were really, we really had a rhythm and all of these problems were kind of like a thing of the past. 
how would you establish those relationships? I mean, you make it sound really easy, Jan. Mm. What kind of advice can you give about the way that you get to know people? I think there's some simple things. Um, I think it starts off with, um, first of all, just saying hello to people when you see them, Um, knowing their names. Um, So if I say, hey, Kimberly, that's very different to hire and walking by, right? So it becomes a bit more personal if you know the person's name. Mm. Um, Also, in those those kind of one-to-ones, you can be a bit more informal. You can say, oh, yeah, how was your weekend? Did you watch, if, if they like sport, did you watch the game last night? You can kind of break the ice a little bit with something that is less uptight and less less kind of formal. If they like watching Hamilton, you could talk a little bit. Of, <laughs> a little, little bit of, <laughs> now I've got to use a bit of our Hamilton waffle at the beginning of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If they like the theatre. So even if there isn't something that connects you, um, if you yeah. can be a little bit interested in them, maybe just outside of what they actually do, it definitely helps break the ice and it definitely helps kind of like smooth that relationship over a little bit. Let's move on to the next phase in your career. How many years were you at Bloomberg? Uh, seven and a half in total. Oh, wow. So you did the first massive part of your career there. Yeah. Um, do you think you felt like you were trusted and you were confident by the end of that time? Very much so, yeah. I think um, I think after I'd gone through that that challenge of becoming a director, finding my feet, establishing people's confidence, and then starting to do the main shows. But I guess yeah, that kind of brings us to where I got made redundant eventually in two thousand and thirteen, and that was pure, that was purely based around the company restructure. Wow, I mean that must have been a blow. It was another type of challenge, another another shock. Um, I felt I was doing really well within the company. And then, yeah, they were closing down operations from London and moving it all to New York. So, yeah, I got made redundant in January 2013 and um, and I was out into the big bad world. And that's all you had known was Bloomberg. Yeah. So how did you feel at that time? Um, so if I'm honest with you, at that time I felt quite confident. I looked around at what BBC News were doing and what Sky were doing and I thought, listen, most of their shows... Um, I didn't look at as any more complicated than the stuff that I'd already done. Um, Yes, it was obviously Mm -hmm. a more well-known platform, but I felt the fundamentals of what they were doing wasn't any more difficult. So I thought, this is just a new chapter for me. It was more excitement. What's what's going to be be the next step? Healthy attitude into into being forced into unemployment. (laughs) Yeah, naturally you have that fear. But sometimes you you need that though, don't you, to kind of move on. I mean, perhaps you wouldn't have wanted to spend your whole life or your whole career at Bloomberg anyway. Absolutely. I know for for a couple of years at the time, I'd felt like um, I'm actually quite enjoying this directing, uh, but we are doing financial news every day. I am waking up at three or four in the morning every day. I wonder what else is out there. I wonder if I could maybe use these skills, but in an area that I enjoy a little bit more. Well, you mean you didn't get incredibly excited about the financial markets? And, uh... I struggled. Um, but I guess when you've, all you've known is a stable income and you've got, you've got like a format, you've got a structure, you've got a management team. That's the only thing I knew. So yeah, kind of like that was the daunting part. It was like, okay, all of this potential, all these potential opportunities, but then it's like, oh, well, hold on. How do I start? How do I, yes, I'm, I can maybe do this job, but how do I get these these positions? Yeah, I'm going on the BBC website. I'm looking at the careers page. I'm trying to look for director roles. I'm not seeing anything. Um, then I'm trying to, then I'm kind of like finding contacts within BBC, um, kind of production manager type people and sending emails out. I'm doing the same for ITV. I'm doing the same for BBC Regional. I'm doing the same with loads of different production companies. And 
and I, I guess like 90, 98% of them are not getting responses. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that imposter syndrome sets in again. It's like, maybe I'm not, I shouldn't be doing this. Because um, now you're, you, you're, you're maybe done, you're not directing every day. So you don't have that confidence at keeping you there. You don't have peers around you who are maybe enjoying the show that you're doing. So now you've gone for two or three months. No one's responding to your emails. No one's kind of getting back to you. Um, no one's kind of given any credibility to any of the experience you've had. Um, you're like, you don't know anyone. You've got no one you could call. You've got no one you could talk to. And even your peers, a lot of them have been made redundant as well. So everyone's kind of out for themselves in a way. Everyone's got to look out for themselves and try and get their souls wrong. We've got a website. Head to theimposterclub.com where you can contact the show and sign up to receive our emails as we build a warm community of creative imposters for world domination. Don't get FOMO and head to theimposterclub.com after this episode. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. So suddenly you haven't got your friends helping you out either. And there's this almost this slightly hidden, icky kind of competitiveness. Right. Um, because you're all kind of probably going for the same jobs and that's awkward. Exactly that. So... I, I'm starting to see my peers getting roles, and some of these guys have maybe like been directing not even as long as me. It was a tough, it was a tough time. I had to sign on at the at the job centre and um, and really reconsider my whole career path. And I thought, well, maybe this is it for me in, in TV, and um, I'm going to pursue the football coaching. So you genuinely thought that that was it, and that you might have to leave the industry? Yeah, yeah, because really, it was like you you haven't really even started in the industry. It was like no seven and a half years kind of counted for nothing from the outsider's perspective, from every from the main industry, because no one cared about Bloomberg. No one cared about that experience, um, especially as a director. It was like, I remember I, I started applying for visual mixer roles, no interest, even AP roles, no interest. I couldn't even get an AP role after after seven and a half years directing. So I thought, listen, this, is, this isn't for me. I need to kind of go down a different route. And I've always loved like football, I've always loved coaching. And I remember I got a chance to work with the Tottenham um, youth team and Fulham youth team. And, and I thought, listen, I could do this. And um, just by by chance, um, a position came up at, at Sky Sports. It happened to be the same person who hired me as an intern, had moved a couple of years before. Or he hadn't responded for maybe three or four weeks. But then he came back yeah. to me and he said, listen, I've just sent your CV to Sky Sports and... Um, I've asked them to kind of get in touch and, and that kind of opened the door there, really. Wow, look at that, the value of relationships there. Absolutely. But that's something you had carved out. I don't mean that in that, I look at you knowing someone and that was the only person that helped you get your next thing. I mean, you made that relationship happen in the first place and thought to tap them up again. But um, going back to the being unemployed bit, I know this is incredibly relatable mm. to the people listening our fellow imposters. How did you occupy your time? Um, 
So I started doing the football coaching. I did a TV production course as well. I did filmmaking on a micro budget. So I thought maybe I'll go down the film route and give that a go. So I kind of I kind of did three courses during that during that period of time. I knew you'd say something like that. You never sit still, do you, Chad? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this, you're a busy person. Like, for, for me, I, I think at that point, I really realised that, that things don't just fall, or certainly for me, things don't just fall on my lap, ever. The world isn't just kind of waiting to just start giving you gifts. So it, it was like, if, I, if I'm going to make something, I'm going to I'm gonna have to do something good myself. And I was like, I had a camcorder. I started doing kind of like... My brother was in music at the time and I started making videos of him in the studio and, and take and following him on tour and, and kind of like started to manage him on that side. So I was doing driving around the country at events and filming that kind of stuff as well. So I was doing a lot of stuff that was keeping me active and keeping me kind of creative. But for me, ultimately, the main thing I needed to ensure was that um, I had a way that I could control. Um, I could control my own destiny in a lot of ways. Although employment seems secure, it's only secure until it's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'd learned that I put a lot of eggs in, all of my eggs in one basket, and I maybe was comfortable. Um, but all it takes is you're getting made redundant, and you're in the same, you're in a worse position than a freelancer in a lot of ways. So yeah, I, I made that decision before Sky Sports. I'm going to set up my own limited company, and, and that's where I kind of started. And again, it was only a day after that that's that first Sky, that first Sky um, contract came in, and then only a couple of days after that. Um, um, one of the uh, Ben Hardy, who was the series director on Big Brother at the time, he'd done some freelancing at Bloomberg. Um, one of the one of the house directors were pregnant and couldn't do the series, and he contacted me saying, "Are you available? I, uh, I think you'd fit in with this perfectly." And then now I had two clients: Big Brother, twelve weeks in the summer. Um, yeah, Sky's kind tick. of like a year rolling one, so it, it was great. But you walk into that Big Brother studio, there's like seventy cameras. It's like totally different setup to what you're used to. You're like, "What the hell am I doing?" <laughs> and they're not talking about financial news. So yeah. so you went from signing on at the job centre. I've been there. I remember them asking me what kinds of roles I would like to apply for and feeling like a total fraud there because yeah. I'm like, well, you know, it would need to be something involving research or finding people to be in TV programmes. And they're looking at you like, nah, I'm talking about this factory job or this yep. Tesco job or whatever. What was your experience yeah, there like? Very, very, very similar to the point where I'd signed on and I think I'd signed on for maybe two or three weeks. And that's when I said, listen, I'd rather not even just get, not even get the money. I'd rather, so like literally I went in there and then they, they'd call me up and it was almost like, I felt like they were looking down on me. It was like, what kind of job do you want? I told them exactly what I said. Listen, I'm a TV director, so I'm looking for roles in TV directing. I would consider vision mixing. Um, I would consider kind of some sort of technical operations, maybe. But really, this is kind of what I want. And they'd, they'd just look right back at me with a straight face and say, OK, but let's be realistic. It was that kind of thing. I'm like, listen, I've been doing this for seven and a half years. I'm not just making up a dream in the sky. But it was almost like they, they, they didn't want to take what I was saying seriously. They were like I was being unrealistic, and and like even when I went in, I obviously had to show that I've been I've been applying for jobs. Like I'd just be chilling yeah. out, thinking, yeah, I'm gonna do nothing all week um, or nothing all month. There's a real gap, isn't there, for people like us in that situation? Because it's not that you're not looking for work, but you've got to kind of make up. You've got to you've got to apply for stuff you would never do just to show them that you're looking to claim the money that you really deserve because you know the next freelance job could be round the corner. And then you'd take that and you'd earn five times more than what they were offering you on a minimum wage 
job that doesn't fit your skill set. Right. It's it's difficult. It's, it's so difficult. Yeah, there's so many flaws of it. If I set up, if I set up my own company, I'm no longer unemployed, but I'm mm-hmm. now self-employed, and it just means that I can do whatever I need to do to try and make money and and to try and kind of like make myself a living. And uh, fortunately, the Sky Sports came in, the Big Brother came in, and that kind of started it. And I kind of started with the limited company through that. Yeah. So you learned from being at Bloomberg for one time, feeling nice and cozy and confident and then getting made redundant that having all your eggs in one basket was not was not a good thing. What was the impact sort of financially and on your personal life? On a personal level, it was um, it was challenging. Like I was quite careful with my savings anyway throughout that time. So um, whilst I... I saw the financial information that went yeah, into yeah, that's it. directly. <laughs> Yeah, so so whilst whilst obviously no one wants to be in a position where they're not earning what they're used to earning every every month, for me I looked at what what I had and I knew that listen I, I'd be okay for a period of time, but it's more like as that time's getting closer and closer that pressure's on. I didn't really um I didn't I don't stop particularly because I didn't know where the end was going to be. I didn't stop looking for things, finding different ways, figuring out how to do stuff. So I, I don't think it I don't think it had a massive negative effect on on the personal life, although socially. I definitely wasn't going out for drinks because it was like I can't mm-hmm. I can't afford to waste money and time going for drinks and having a good time when I don't know how how I'm going to earn in the future. I need to put everything into somehow setting up a future for myself. Really, you're such a positive and upbeat person, though. I feel like there's so many there's a lot of times within your career story up to this point that you could have well jacked it in or felt like this is too hard. Is that just an inbuilt personality thing, do you think? I mean, ha- you seem very sort of level, level-headed. That's a good question. Um... Or do you have this great front? Are you actually the ultimate imposter, Jan, where all of this, you just have to work hard, yeah, it's been tough, but blah, 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 upbeat is actually a front, and underneath you're like a soft, mushy mess. <laughs> I promise this isn't therapy, but um, some people have likened it. <laughs> no, do, do you know what? Like, like, don't get me wrong. There's, there's definitely, um, there's definitely kind of like, like fears and worries and stuff that come into play for sure. But um, ultimately, like, I guess, I guess for me, it just comes down to the same thing, and it's, it's how we've been since we're, we were young. Okay, you can be upset about something, but that's not going to help the situation. <laughs> like from my perspective, it's not going to help the situation being sad, being nervous, being upset. For me, we have, like, my whole outlook is just being pragmatic about it. We've got to figure out, okay, this has happened. How are we gonna? How are we gonna approach it? How are we gonna get on with it? How are we gonna move forward? Yeah. Um, I think yeah, literally, like having been in that situation where I was unemployed, where my experience kind of counted for nothing. I don't, I don't want to be there again. But at the same time, I know what it's like, so it doesn't terrify me. Mm. Um, I know that I'll find another way. So for me, it's it shaped my approach because I'm driven so that I'm not in that situation again. I'm driven so that I'm not in a position where one organization can control my whole life and my whole upbringing. And one day they can just say, Do you know what, we're closing down or something. But also looking at that next generation as well and just thinking, listen, for me in this industry, to survive, I think you have to have an, an element of thick skin and resilience. And particularly in what we do as directors and particularly if, if we're working at the top level as well. I think that that's really cool. And also the point of, of doing this. And I think by getting senior successful people like you to come and talk about how you've got 
through challenges can just give people that reassurance that it's not just you because so often in especially in this you know mainly freelance industry you feel very alone and it feels like I'm the only one who's not getting phone calls I'm the only one who's signing on at the job center I'm the only one who's you know pretending to be happy and upbeat but really I'm feeling worried about everything I've noticed that you do a lot of mentoring and encouraging apprentice style schemes taking people under your wing for shadowing in the industry and I think that is such a wonderful thing to do I have a lot of respect for that especially with someone who's so busy as you why do you feel that's important even before I got into this industry I never knew working in tv was even a thing I never really realized it was an option yeah I watch tv there was nothing nothing that suggested that it was even a, a hope in hell of working in there. That was even an option. And you could kind of like fast forward that even to the point that I'd worked in TV for seven and a half years, got made redundant, had to go to the job centre, and them job centre people were still kind of preaching that same message to me, almost that it's not even a thing. It's not even an option. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any reference, any reference of anybody kind of like me who worked in, the, who I could connect with or relate to in any way. For me, it's like if I was to go through my whole career and not give people some sort of visibility that it's, it's possible, for me, we, we haven't kind of moved the needle at all. But even if I can help out one person, even if I, and maybe that person is super talented, first of all, they can bring something different to the industry, particularly if it's an underrepresented group as well, right? Specifically if it's not the typical people you'd see in a typical role. The people who are likely to get that opportunity are people who have got a dad, a brother, a sister, an auntie, someone who's already a director. They are going to be the people most likely to get into that position, right? Because they're just going to, they're, they're going to bring your son or bring your daughter to work day. But what if, you, what if you haven't? What if you've done everything that is on paper, technically the right thing to do? You've studied, you've read it up, you've realised that's what you want to do. So now if you're someone who's starting up, you're someone who's maybe, you, you don't come from a background of wealth or anything like that, you've now got to make a choice. So are you going to go and start shadowing lots of days for nothing? Or are you going to go and work in a coffee shop so that you can pay your rent? So that now you've got now you've got a tough decision to make because yeah. you've got you've got to go for your career, which everyone expects you. If you really want it, you just do it. You just do it for free. But but hold on, yeah. But what if you've got nowhere to sleep? You've got to survive, right? So a lot. So sometimes these people will, will will have the hard decision and say, "Listen, I've got to work. I've got to work in a coffee shop." Yeah. And they'll say, "Okay, no worries." And the opportunity will go to that person who can afford to just kind of do it for free because. They're supported in that way as well. And that is a lot of the reason why we don't have a particularly diverse industry or that because it's just it's so hard for people with no connections to the industry um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds quite often or several of these sort of minority groups. It's much harder statistically for those people to work for free and to get in. And honestly, Jan, as a black director yourself, I think that is why what the work that you do in full vision on LinkedIn and socials and through your company is so important and influential to other people who are trying to get in and on in the industry. So I I wanted to say thank you for that because I'm really aware of it and I watch your little videos and I love them. Oh, no, thank you. Um, No, I appreciate that. And for me, it's more just a case where I just think there's there's a hell of a lot of talking when it comes to these things, a hell of a lot of talking. Oh, we've got to do, what should we do? Let's have a meeting, let's talk for three years, let's review it with a committee. And I, I got I got to a point very quickly that I just decided I'm I'm not really here for these conversations. Like like I'm gonna just start doing things myself. 
and I'm going to start just trying to give people opportunities um, where I can um, within reason. I don't, I don't have a huge company, I don't have huge resources, but if I can do a little bit to help one or two people, then great. There's so much you can talk about, so many meetings you can have. And actually, sometimes it's, the answer is a lot easier. I don't mean to the whole big problem of making the industry more diverse, but I mean those small steps that anyone can take, like bringing someone onto a shoot or going into your kid's school to talk about careers or whatever it is. You know, I've done all of those things, but everyone can do more. And that's what I'm, you know, I'm definitely down for as well. Um, right. Is there anything that you wish you could sit the younger Jan down now and tell? Um, I think the, fir- the first one is in this industry, um, people are not going to hand anything out. You need to actually plan your own route. You need to be really kind of like, you need to be really deliberate about the steps that you want to take in your own career and really take control of that and work towards a specific goal if you want to make it to the top of this industry. Um, I think the second thing is, um, regardless of how good you are, nothing gets made without a great team around you. And the importance of building relationships and building a great team that you can work with is is, um, is paramount. It's massive. So um, building good relationships with people and people who aren't necessarily like you, people who are different, who, who can bring a different perspective, for me, the best teams are the ones that come from multiple different perspectives, someone who can bring a different insight to what you have. I always try and tap into people who don't have exactly the same journey as me. If they did, we'd know very little. The reason I could kind of do a lot of shows like this is because I have people who come, who can bring so many different things. And even with some of the work we've been doing, we try and bring people who maybe have a bit of a film background into some of the TV stuff we're doing. And we start to try and shoot stuff in a different way. And it's a team environment. Um, and I think the third one will be, um, I liken it to football. It's playing, it, it's, it's playing people in the right positions. It's recognising what you're good at. You don't have to be good at everything. You don't have to be great at everything, but recognising what you're good at, playing that position, and I'm just like a football player. Um, I'd say if you might be a good striker, but you're terrible at tackling, you're not going to play at defence, you're going to play up front. I, I use the same kind of analogy. Yeah, there are a few little nuggets that I'd give to my, my younger self. Love that. I really love that. And I love how we keep bringing it back to both football and finances, which is quite fun. Um, but I do, I think some people hire so just in their own reflection and it is it is boring because we are boring if we are, if there was like lots of, God, nobody wants lots of Kimberleys in the same room. But if there was lots of me with my same background, with my same opinions, with my same Hamilton and Ted Lasso habit, then it would be dull and no one would get the, well, everyone would laugh at the jokes because it'd all be me. But, you know, it, it, bringing other people to the table brings different ideas and it's it's creative. And that's exactly what you're getting at, Jen. Like if you have lots of different people from lots of different genres and roles and backgrounds in a room, you're going to have brilliant fun coming up with stuff, some of which lands, some of which doesn't, but is going to be a lot more creative than um, sitting down and, you know, stroking your beard with other people who just nod. 100%. So I'm I'm all on board with that. Um, so I think your kind of overall moral of the, the Jan Genesis story. Oh, my God, we haven't even talked about your surname. Yeah. Genesis is just the best surname of all time. <laughs> I mean, I thought Godbolt was quite strong, but Genesis. Godbolt's good, though. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's just awesome anyway. Um I think the kind of moral of your story or the overall theme of your story is your work ethic, 
your attitude of just cracking on. And also you seem to have this talent for shrugging stuff off or at least if you feel like you've lost your confidence or you're a bit anxious about something, you do something about it. So how would you sort of describe that that, that you do in terms of something helpful for other people? Um, this industry is tough. There's no, there's no two ways about it. It's challenging. There are things that are going to maybe frustrate us, maybe make us angry at times. And for me, the most important thing is how we how we use that. There's been lots of uh, situations where maybe I felt doors have closed, but I will use that to navigate a different uh, to navigate a different environment. Any frustration or anger kind of like it fires me up. It fires me up and it motivates me. I guess it's the alter ego of imposter syndrome, right? I'll have something in my head telling me, oh, why should you not be here? But if somebody else said you can't be here, that fires me up to make sure I should definitely be there. So um, I guess it flips it on its, on its head and it's how you use that and having that belief within yourself. That's a battle between yourself. That is a, that is a confidence you've got to lay down yourself. No one else is going to have that. No one else is going to have that. No one else is going to understand. But if that's the target that you want to set yourself, um, I'd say use any ammunition that you have as, as fire and, and, and utilize that to, to the maximum. Yeah, I love that. Great answer. Thank you so much for your time sharing your story. I think it's it's a very inspiring one and I love your work ethic. I feel like you've had imposter syndrome moments over your career where you've handled them and you've forged through them, but actually you've never let them get the better of you and you've always, you know, you've always pushed on and found the solution. Thank you so much for coming on to the Imposter Club. Oh, thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Right, come on, imposters. Let's get everyone talking about this stuff more. Open up your WhatsApp groups and tell your production pals they need to listen to The Imposter Club. Everyone loves a podcast recommend, and this is so relevant for them. So that kudos you'll get back is a free gift from me. See you next time. The Imposter Club is brought to you by Talented People, the specialist TV executive search and production staffing company run by content makers for content makers. Every day, the team matchmake, influence and place premium senior talent in behind-the-screens roles with integrity and a human approach. Produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, executive producer, Rosie Turner. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.